Our study this evening is Esther, Esther chapter 9, actually Esther chapters 9 and 10. 10 is a very short chapter, so we'll read chapter 9 verse 1 and through chapter 10. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day, when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. Even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews, because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. And in Susa the capital, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arasai, Aradai, and Vaizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Jews' enemy. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Susa, the capital, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men and the ten sons of Haman in Susa, the capital. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall be even, it shall even be granted you. And what is your further request? It shall also be done. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king... Let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that it should be done so, and an edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's ten sons were hanged. And the Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the fourteenth day of the month Adar and killed three hundred men in Susa. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies and kill 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. This was done on the 13th day of the month Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and the fourteenth of the same month, and they rested on the fifteenth day, and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore the Jews of the rural areas who live in the rural towns make the fourteenth day of the month Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually, because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies, and it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning 
into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Thus the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the adversary of all the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, the lot, to disturb them and destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that this wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim after the name of Pur. And because of the instructions in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them, so that they should not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews, or their memory fade from their descendants. Then Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And he sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, namely words of peace and truth, to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with instructions for their times of fasting and their lamentations. And the command of Esther established these customs for Purim, and it was written in the book. Now King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the, sea, uh, and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the accomplishments of his authority and strength, and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of, of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and in favor with the multitude of his kinsmen one who sought the good of his people, and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. Well, we've come to the end of the book of Esther, when in the twelfth month, that is the last month of the year for the Jews called the month of Adar, according to our reckoning, it would be about the month of February, because the Jews reckoned March to be the beginning of the year, and the end of the year in February. The twelfth month has arrived, and now in the twelfth month, it was time for the enemies of the Jews to act according to the first edict, and the Jews to respond according to the second edict. And this is what happens, and it summarizes what happens in verse 1. It says, On the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. On this day, the enemies failed to succeed in their pursuit of killing and massacring all the Jews. And instead, the Jews were able to defend themselves against their enemies. It says in verse 2, The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. 
and no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. And verse 3 says that the princes of the provinces, all the officials of the provinces throughout the kingdom, assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Those who sought the harm of the Jews gathered together, but instead, the officials of the empire, though they were not all Jews, they helped Mordecai and all the Jews defend themselves against their enemies because the dread of the Jews had fallen on them and the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Suddenly, they were terrified of Mordecai and the Jews. Now, when this happened, it did not happen by chance. It happened by divine appointment. Let's look at a couple of examples of this in Second Chronicles. We'll see the first one in Second Chronicles chapter 14. This happened by the decree of God, by the will of God, that dread of the Jews and Mordecai fell upon them. Second Chronicles 14 is an example. In the days of King Asa, king of Judah, he had enemies attacking him, and he was successful in defeating them. Second Chronicles 14, verse 14. 14, 14 says, And they destroyed all the cities around Gerar, for the dread of the Lord had fallen on them, and they despoiled all the cities, for there was much plunder in them. It says that they were able to destroy their enemies because the dread of the Lord had fallen on them, had fallen on the enemy, so that they were terrified. They were demoralized as they went into battle. And then because of their demoralized state, they were defeated. Second Chronicles 15 gives another example. Second Chronicles 15, verse 14. This is in the case of Asa and his reforms throughout the kingdom of Judah. 15.14 Moreover, they made an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets, and with horns. And all Judah rejoiced concerning the oath, for they had sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly, and he let them find him. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. Because they were faithful to God, God gave them rest on every side. All of their enemies all around the, the border of Judah, the land of Judah, they were, they were pushed back and they were terrified at attacking Asa because the Lord had made that terror fall on them. And then a third example, Second Chronicles 17, verse 10. Second Chronicles 17, 10. In the time of King Jehoshaphat, a good king like King Asa was for most of his reign, Jehoshaphat was a good king, and in Second Chronicles 17.10, it says, Now the dread of the Lord was on all the kingdoms of the lands which were around Judah, so that they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. They did not make war against Jehoshaphat. Judah was peaceful because the dread of the Lord fell on all the surrounding kingdoms, so that they dare not attack Jehoshaphat. Now, whether they are prevented from attacking or they do attack and they are defeated in battle, either way, the dread of God falls on the enemies of God and the enemies of the people of God so that God and His people are victorious. That's what it means in Esther 9, 2, and 3 that the dread of the Jews and the dread of Mordecai fell on them. 
This was the beginning of the end for them. Verse 4. Esther chapter 9 verse 4 makes this point about the greatness of Mordecai. While all this is happening, and Mordecai has been the second ruler for a few months now, it says in verse 4, Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. He was promoted when the plot of Haman was discovered, and then Haman was executed, which occurred in chapter 7. When he was promoted into the place of Haman as the second ruler, over time, over these months, Mordecai's greatness, what he did on behalf of the king, the kind of man he was, the kind of character he had, the way he conducted the king's business, all that he did to benefit the kingdom, to help the people of the kingdom, to help the, the king and all of his officials, all of this spread throughout all the provinces, throughout the vast kingdom of the king of Ahasuerus, from northern Africa into Central Asia and even into what is now uh, modern uh, Pakistan in that area. All of that realm is what he had. And Mordecai's name spread throughout all that vast territory. It says in verse 4, he became greater and greater. Here again, we have another implicit reference to God's work. It does not say God ex explicitly, but implicitly, it is God who is making Mordecai greater and greater. We see a similar phrase used in 2 Samuel. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. 2 Samuel 3, verse 1. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. David's house grew steadily stronger. Well, who's doing it? It doesn't say explicitly right there. Let's look at 2 Samuel 5. 2 Samuel 5, verse 10. Why is David becoming stronger and stronger, greater and greater, able to defeat his enemies? 2 Samuel 5.10 explains... And David became greater and greater, for the Lord God of hosts was with him. He became greater and greater, which is the same phrase we find in Esther chapter 9. And why did he become greater and greater? For the Lord God of hosts, the God of armies, was with him. And in the same way, in Esther 9.4, Mordecai became greater and greater because God was with him and God's armies were on his side to help the Jews. And with the help of God, they were able to conduct the following. Esther 9, 5 to 10 explains that the Jews were able in Susa, the capital, to kill 500 of their enemies. 500 of their enemies plus the 10 sons of Haman. 510 deaths there in Susa, the capital, because the favor of God was on the Jews against their enemies and the officials of the kingdom were helping Mordecai and the Jews defend themselves against their enemies. They killed them all. You'll see a, a very interesting note in verse 10 which occurs a few times in chapter 9. In 9 verse 10 it says, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. 
And verse 15 says, But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. And so what is happening here? And also it says that in verse 16, They did not lay their hands on the plunder. Even though the Jews were able to defend their lives with the help of the authorities, they were not greedy and covetous people. They were not after material wealth. It's indicating here they had the permission to plunder the people, but they didn't want to do that. They let that alone. They made it clear that they were really trying to just save themselves. They did not want to be greedy after money and they showed this restraint, though they had the permission from the second edict to plunder their enemies. They didn't do it. Now, in 11 to 15, verses 11 to 15, a report comes to the king about what has just happened, the 510 killed in the capital. So the king approaches the queen, Esther, in verse 12, with this acknowledgement that the 510 have been slain. Then he's, he asked the question, what then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall even be granted you. And what is your further request? It shall also be done. He doesn't know what else has been done throughout, but he wants to give Esther a request, whatever she wants to request, to make sure that this decree is executed fully, executed properly, executed according to her own wish. So what does she wish? Verse 13 says, If it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. She, her request is that the next day in Susa the capital that they are able to do according to the edict, that they have one more day to carry out the terms of the edict, and that Haman's ten sons who were killed, that they could be hanged on the gallows. And these gallows were likely the same gallows that Haman had erected at his house for Mordecai. And instead, Haman was hanged there. And then now here, her request is that the ten sons be hanged there in, for public display so that everyone would know what has happened. The king granted it. He grants the request and it says in verses 14 and 15, verse 14, the ten sons were hanged on the gallows and then in verse 15, the Jews were given the next day, the 14th day of the month, they killed 300 men in Susa. They killed 300 more men they had already killed 500. Now they killed 300 more men in the capital and did not lay their hands on the plunder. Then verses 16 to 19, it describes what happened not only on the 13th, but on the 14th and the 15th day, both in the city and in the rural places of the, of the empire. Verse 16, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled, to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies and kill 75,000 of those who hated them. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Throughout the rest of the kingdom, in all the provinces, the Jews gathered together. They assembled with the help of officials to defend 
their lives and rid themselves of their enemies. They're able to do so. And successfully, they killed 75,000. Now, 75,000, not in Susa, the capital, but 75,000 total throughout the whole empire, from northern Africa into South Asia, into modern northern Africa to South Asia, in, in a span or, or distance of thousands of miles, they were able to kill 75,000 people. Verse 17, this was done on the 13th day of the month, Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and the 14th of the same month, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore, the Jews of the rural areas who live in the rural towns make the 14th day of the month Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. So in the rural areas, they executed the edict on the 13th day and then celebrated on the 14th day. In Susa, they executed the edict for two days, on the 13th and the 14th, and then they celebrated on the 15th day. And they celebrated with feasting and rejoicing, and also sending portions of food to one another. To help the poor and also to, to celebrate with one another, they sent portions to each other. This is what happened when it actually occurred, on the 13th, 14th, and then the 15th. Then, in verses 20 to 32, for the rest of this, this chapter, it explains and it emphasizes the fact that they wrote these things down and they issued a commandment, a regulation, for the Jews throughout the whole empire to obey this commandment. That is, to commemorate what had happened with the celebration. To commemorate with the celebration. And I believe that it's emphasized this way that it was recorded and commanded by Mordecai and Esther because this is a feast not found in the law of Moses. Because it's not found in the law of Moses, the people would need to be convinced that this was of God to celebrate it. Verse 20. Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually. Every year, he wrote to them, obliging them to celebrate. He obliged them, obligated them to celebrate. Why? Why was it so important and why was it so necessary to commemorate this? Verse 22 says, because on those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies, and it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. This is the reason. The reason is it was a turn of events. They had sorrow, but it was turned to gladness. They had mourning, but it was turned to a holiday, a day of feasting, a good day, literally. And so they, it was necessary for them to remember how God had changed their circumstances. 
Their circumstances were bleak, they were miserable, they were fatal, but God turned them into joy, happiness, and life. Why not celebrate? We should celebrate. When the circumstance was bleak, and then it is turned into a blessing, there should be commemoration. Yes, Verse 23, Thus the joys undertook what they had started to do, and what Mordecai had written to them. The Jews undertook this, they started to do this, and Mordecai wrote to confirm all of this. Again, we hear, we read of a summary, verses 24 and following. A summary of what has just happened in the past year and the contents of this book of Esther. Verse 24, For Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the ag- adversary of, the, of all the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is the lot, to disturb them and destroy them. This enemy of the Jews schemed by casting lots, and the term for lot is poor, P-U-R, poor, and in the plural, lots is purim. The ending is a plural of the Hebrew language, purim, and that's how it is known. It's known as the Feast of Purim, or simply Purim. And in other sources, it's called the Day of Mordecai, or Mordecai's Day. Mordecai's Day, or the Feast of Purim. Verse 25, But when it came, came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that his wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. The king, when it was brought to his attention by Queen Esther, he changed it, or he commanded that the scheme have a counter-edict, a counter-decree, so that they could, the Jews could defend themselves. He identifies it here in verse 25, his wicked scheme. It was not a good or righteous one, it was a wicked one. It's wicked because wicked people commit atrocities against innocent people, against victims, against those who don't deserve the punishment or the affliction they are getting. They are righteous in that sense. In a legal sense, they're righteous. Not that they're sinless, but they have not done any crime against the law to deserve a penalty. And that's what Haman wanted against all the Jews. It was a wicked scheme. Therefore, he paid for it, his sons paid for it, and many others paid for it. 75,810 people, or 811 people, including Haman himself. That many people paid for their complicity and their uh, endorsement of this wicked scheme. It turned against them. And it turned, it says, on his own head. It turned on his own head. That's why the scriptures say, Obadiah 15, The day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it shall return to you. Your dealings will return upon your own head. And even Paul in Acts 18, verse 6, when the Jews resisted and blasphemed him, he says, Your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. Your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean. It's now your responsibility, you are guilty, and God will hold you accountable. I'm clean, I'm free, I've done my responsibility, I warned you, and you refused. Well, that's what happened to all these people. 
their own sins came upon their own head. Nobody paid for their sins. They paid for their own sins. Verse 26, it tells us that they, the, the, these days are called Purim, after the name of Pur, and because of the instructions in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them. The Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they should not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. The Jews did so for themselves, for their descendants, and for all who allied themselves with them. All who allied themselves with them means all those who converted. As it says in chapter 8, verse 17, it says, 8.17, And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Many of the peoples became Jews. They did not become Jews ethnically. Obviously, they weren't naturally born into the world suddenly. They were born Jews in a religious, in a spiritual sense. They were born Jews. So, the Jews, their descendants, and all those who allied themselves with them. In the New Testament, the word is proselyte. We find this term in Acts chapter 2 and other places. The proselyte is the convert to the faith. They, they all were to do it, and they all were to do it in every generation, every family, every province, and in every city. It emphasizes the point that they were all supposed to do it wherever they were, and they were to do it from generation to generation. It was not supposed to fade from their descendants. This memory were, was not supposed to fade from any of them. They were supposed to remember what God had done on their behalf. Then 29 to 32 tells us of a second letter. This second letter was issued by Queen Esther and Mordecai to reinforce and to ensure that this was carried out. Both of them wrote it. Verse 29, Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. The second letter was issued it went throughout all the 127 provinces, verse 30, and these were words of peace and truth. Peace. They were to celebrate peace and to celebrate truth. They were given this peace and given this truth by God, and they were supposed to remember it. And verse 31 to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with instructions for their times of fasting and their lamentations. The time of fasting, it doesn't tell us specifically here, but outside of the Bible, the sources outside of the Bible, Jewish sources tell us that it was the 13th day that was the day of fasting. That was the day, they call it the fast of Esther. And then the next day they would celebrate. They would fast the day before and then celebrate with, with food and drink 
and sending gifts and portions of food to one another. That's how they would celebrate. Verse 32, And the command of Esther established these customs for Purim, and it was written in the book. It was written, it was recorded. Now, this book, we've seen a few times that it says Mordecai had written in chapter 9, verse 20. He recorded these events, it says. And then it also says in verse 23, Mordecai had written. And verse 29, Esther and Mordecai wrote with full authority uh, in letters. And also it says at verse 32, 932, it was written in the book. When it says that Mordecai wrote and that Mordecai wrote in the book, I believe that it is the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, that Mordecai is the author of the book of Esther. I refer you to the introductory lesson we had on this for more evidence for Mordecai being the author of this book. Therefore, it is an eyewitness who wrote this book. An eyewitness who wrote. Then verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Now King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. He laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands. Wherever he had dominion, he laid a tribute. That is, he raised a tax. He issued a tax so that he might collect it and use it to solidify his kingdom, to make it more stable. And with that stability, which was not a, a stability at this point, at least at this point in the Persian Empire, there was no great rebellion for this tax. And verse 2, all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? The financial stability, and then here we have Mordecai elevated and he has authority, strength, greatness. He has all of this because there is stability with, the, with Mordecai's execution of justice. Mordecai has the moral authority and he has the financial stability to carry out what needs to be carried out throughout the whole kingdom. And whatever Mordecai did and the king issued, it, they're all written in the chronicles of the kingdom. This chronicles is the chronicles of the dual kingdom, Medea and Persia. These two kingdoms allied themselves to destroy the previous kingdom, the kingdom of the Babylonians. And so they kept a record. They kept a, a daily record of the activities of the kingdom, the events of the kingdom. And that's where all of this is recorded. It's recorded in a historical book. This is not a fictitious account. It's not a fabulous account. It's not mythological or legendary. It's historical. It's factual. It's recorded here as fact. And anyone who was a contemporary could have easily gone to the chronicles of the kingdom to read or consult someone who had access to the chronicles and read. Now, these chronicles were also in various other kingdoms. The Assyrians had chronicles. The Babylonians had chronicles. Various kingdoms had chronicles. And even in the book of Kings and Chronicles, we read 
of the, the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel and the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, which is a, a set of different books outside of the Bible where more information is recorded about the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, and the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. Now verse 3, chapter 10, verse 3. For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and in favor with the multitude of his kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people, and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. Now, attention in verse 3 is focused on Mordecai helping his own people. He was certainly helping the whole kingdom in verses 1 and 2. Now, specifically, he's helping his own people. Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus. Just as Joseph was the second ruler, we read of this in Genesis 41, 37 to 45, just as Joseph was second only to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, here also Mordecai was second only to King Ahasuerus in the Persian Empire. He had great favor among the Jews, and he did great things for the Jews. He showed them favor. He sought their good. He spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. He specifically had a love and concern for his own people. He cared for them. He loved them as himself. He loved them because they were his own people. He didn't despise them. He didn't reject who he was. He loved who he was, and he also loved the people who were likewise, who were his own people. Now, let's notice a few things from this section of Esther, Esther chapters 9 and 10. We have to first uh, acknowledge, as we did earlier, that when these events occur, the events of a change of, uh, of circumstances, the dread of our enemies or their enemies and also our enemies falling on them and then they humble themselves or they are defeated. If they attack us, they are defeated. This all happens by the hand of God. We saw examples of this in Second Chronicles, chapters 14, 15, and 17. When this change of circumstance occurs, it happens by the will of God. Let's see how this is true of us. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 9. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Those who are false Jews, who are of the synagogue of Satan, they are liars, and Christ tells the church, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet and to know that I have loved you. They thought that they were victorious or about to be victorious over us, but it ended up being that a reversal of circumstances occurred so that they were made by Christ, they were made by Christ to come and bow down at our feet and to know that Christ has loved us. 
This is the plea of the people of God throughout history. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, explains the cry of the people of God throughout history. And this is before the throne of God. They cry out like this. They want a reversal of their circumstances. They live in misery now, and they want deliverance from their misery, and then the judgment of God on their enemies. Revelation 6, 9. Revelation 6, 9. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. These saints, it says in verse 9, they were slain because of the word of God and because of their testimony. They maintained their faith until the end, until the end of their life. They pray to God in verse 10, How long, O Lord, holy and true, the Lord is holy and true. Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They ask God, how long are you going to refrain from judging and avenging us, avenging our blood, upon the people of the earth who are still there wreaking misery and destruction on the people of God? How long are you going to wait to punish them? They're told in verse 11, they're first given a white robe, which again shows that God is pleased with them. They are saints. They're given a white robe, and they're told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. Wait. Wait until the rest of your brothers, the rest of the body of Christ, the rest of the church, the rest of the faithful saints wait until they are slain and then the right time will come for God to intervene and to destroy his enemies just as we read in chapter 3 verse 9 they're supposed to wait until that happens then who will carry that out when it does happen it will be Christ look at Revelation 19 Revelation 19 This picture of Christ who will come and help us and defend us is not the sappy Savior Jesus that is very popular. This is the Jesus who is the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. Revelation 19.11 And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His name, Faithful and True, He's on a white horse in righteousness, not wickedness. This is not sin. It's righteousness. In righteousness, he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. And he is, called, and he, and he is clothed with the robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth... 
comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is describing Jesus who comes with his armies in heaven who are also clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Just as the saints are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, they have that. And they follow Christ on white horses. Christ has a sharp sword, his mouth, his word, word of judgment against his enemies and against the people of God, will smite the nations, will slay the nations. He'll rule them with the rod of iron. And Jesus treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Jesus is the one who carries out God's fierce wrath. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He will make that known. This is what God will do, specifically Christ, His instrument, His agent, will do this on behalf of God and the people of God. We will be victorious over all our enemies. Another aspect of what we've seen here in Esther chapters 9 and 10 is that the people rejoiced. The people rejoiced at God's justice. When they saw God's justice, they rejoiced. They were joyful. They celebrated. It was a feast. It was a holiday. They, they shared food with, with each other and drank. The people of God are also supposed to do this. When the enemies of God are destroyed, the people of God are to rejoice. Example, Revelation chapter 18, verse 20. Revelation 18, 20. When the people of God see and know that Babylon the Great has fallen, they are told to rejoice. Revelation 18, 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Presumably all the angels of heaven. Rejoice over her. Rejoice over the fact that Babylon the Great has just fallen. And when it falls, it's not buildings that fall that we're happy about. It's the people. It's the people in the city who have corrupted the earth and who spread idolatry and immorality everywhere. These are the people who now meet God's justice. And, and the people here are told, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints. That's all of us. Apostles and prophets. And what's the reason? Because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. God is a God of truth, righteousness, holiness, justice. He protects His people. He shows His love for His people and His justice towards His enemy, enemies when He punishes the enemies of the people of God. Because the enemies of the people of God are ultimately God's enemies. We see that the Apostle Paul also rejoices in this. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. This is a very important verse 
because it is not as though we only rejoice on the day of judgment. We also rejoice in the meantime whenever wicked people get what they deserve. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Maranatha. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. If anyone does not love the Lord, the Lord Jesus, may a curse be on him. And why do I say he rejoices in this? Because he says Maranatha. You have heard this word Maranatha. It means, O Lord, come. Implied Lord is our Lord. O our Lord, come. Come. Come for this day. We look forward to this day when all that are to be accursed are accursed. We are vindicated and they are punished. We look forward to it. Maranatha. Maranatha is an exclamation. You, you may have heard of that. Some people put it in a song. Some people shout it. Maranatha is an exclamation of joy and celebration to God. Now, another aspect of what we've seen here is in chapter 10. Mordecai was elevated to a position of authority in due time, which is a symbol of our elevation in due time. It's a symbol and it's an example of how we will one day be exalted in due time. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 19.30, the first will be last and the last will be first. The first will be last and the last will be first. Remember the, the, the parable, or if it is a parable, uh, what Jesus said about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16.19-31. What he said about the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus was a believer living in misery, but in the life to come, he was at peace and he was in Abraham's bosom. He was with Abraham. He was not being tormented. The rich man was living a life of luxury and unbelief on the earth, yet in the life to come, it says in Luke 16, 23, in Hades he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes being in torment. The rich man was in torment in the life to come. Not Lazarus, but the rich man was. And why? Jesus says in Luke 18, 14, the reason why. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. The Pharisee, in this parable of Luke 18, he boasts of his own deeds. He does not ask God for mercy. The tax collector did ask God for mercy, and God granted him mercy, because he humbled himself. The humble shall be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled, meaning humiliated. 1 Peter 5, 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, 
because he cares for you. The Christian is characterized by humility, humbleness. This is what we ought to pursue every day, every moment of the day. Under the mighty hand of God, under God's power, His sovereignty, His authority over us. That He, God, may exalt you or us at the proper time. In due time, sometimes it happens in this life, many times it doesn't. But in the life to come, on the day of judgment, we will be victorious. Our faith overcomes the world. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 to 3, that we would be sitting in judgment over the world and over angels. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? We are going to be judging the world and judging angels, the fallen angels. We'll be judging both. That's the exaltation God will give us in due time. We will be judging. Just as Mordecai in due time was the second ruler and he was sitting in judgment over many of the affairs of the kingdom. This is a type of the exaltation that we will receive in due time on the day of judgment. Another truth we read is in verse, verses 1 to 3, chapter 10, verses 1 to 3, that Mordecai had concern for the people generally in the kingdom but also specifically for his own people. He had true care and concern. He was a beneficent ruler, a caring and loving ruler over the whole realm and even for his own people. This is the way all of us should be in, in the spiritual sense and even in the material earthly sense. Just as Mordecai was this way, this is the way God expects us to be. We see this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Galatians 6, verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. While we have opportunity, whatever sphere of influence, whatever power we have, we ought to do good to all men, everyone, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Especially toward believers, we should be doing good. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. First Thessalonians 5, we can start at verse 14, 5.14. And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. See that no one repays one another evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. See there how... The brethren, we, the church, are supposed to be patient with all men, verse 14, not repay evil for evil. That is, don't have private or personal vengeance one toward another. 
the clarification I need to make is, in the book of Esther, we're dealing with societal, civil, and judicial justice. Here, he's talking about personal afflictions, personal animosities that people have one toward another. Because somebody does evil toward us, we should not repay that evil person with evil ourselves. We ought to bear it, be patient, practice self-control, turn the other cheek, as Jesus said. And then he says in verse 15, always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. Seek that which is good for one another toward the body of Christ, toward the brethren, in the church. Help one another and also help all men. The priority we find in the sequence of the words here in verse 15 is priority for the brethren and then all men. And in Galatians 6.10, he made it even more clear. He said, let us do good to all men and especially to those who are of the household of the faith, especially toward believers. This is how it should be done. Now, the one who loves God will conduct his life in this way. 1 John chapter 4 explains this. 1 John 4 explains. 1 John 4, verse 19. 1 John 4, 19. We love because He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. John has in mind here the church, the brothers in the church, the body of Christ. He says, we love because he first loved us. Since God first loved us, we have the capacity and also the obligation to truly love one another. And we find that we can know who a true brother is and who a false brother is by verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. We can't say, I love God and then hate our brother. If we do that, that then we're liars. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. People sometimes say, it's easy for me to love God or easier for me to love God, but it's hard for me to love people, especially people in the church. But this verse does not give us that leeway. It does not give us that at all. It actually says that if we don't love the one we can see, the physical person, the one who's actually there, if we don't love that person, we, then we actually cannot love God because He's invisible. He's unseen. John the Apostle is actually saying loving the person physically is easier than loving God spiritually. And actually he's saying we show our spiritual love of God by helping our brother in the church. We show our love for the unseen God by what we do for one another. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. There has to be consistency. If we love God, we'll love our neighbor. If we don't love our neighbor, we do not love God. And specifically in this passage, the, the neighbor is the brother, the, the one brother in Christ.
This is what God expects of each of us. Now, this is not simply or only talking about material things. I think primarily it's talking about spiritual things. Example of this, Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, verse 1. Romans 9, verse 1. Paul has just explained the gospel to the, up to this point in, in eight chapters. He's explained the gospel and the wonderful things we have in Christ because of the gospel. He's been explaining this, especially the, the last few chapters, all of the benefits that we have in Christ. The natural question is, why did the Jews reject all this? How could it be? And what is our response to that? Our response is in verses 1 to 5. How should we look at upon those who have rejected the message or who have yet to believe the message? Romans 9, verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Paul says that he has great sorrow and unceasing grief. He wishes that he could be accursed for the sake of his brethren, kinsmen according to the flesh, Israelites. And he's saying this solemnly, verse 1. He tells the truth. He's not lying. His conscience bears witness, testifies to him in the Holy Spirit. This is the kind of concern he has for his fellow Jew. Romans 10, verse 1. After explaining how God chooses whom he wants to save, he still prays that God might save. Verse 10. I mean, chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. His heart's desire and his prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He prays that his people might be saved. Well, this teaches us that we ought to also love people, all men, and also love our brothers, love the body of Christ, especially both spiritually and materially. We ought to help one another. Grow in the faith, stay strong in the faith, be built up in the faith, pray for one another, help one another. Let's do so. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.